Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is part two with our live event, the open and relational theology extravaganza that we had a couple weeks ago at the Blue Moon Brewery in Rhino, Denver, Colorado, right before the American Academy of Religion. I want to thank all of our speakers, everybody from Jason to Elaine and Stephen in part one. Part two, you're going to hear Donna, you're going to hear Nancy, you're going to hear Andrew, and lastly, Tom. And uh, you're in for a treat. This is going to be great. If you like this episode, please, we ask you this often, but do us a huge favor. Go to iTunes, rate it, review it, and then share it online. All of our social media channels are at Brew Theology, except for Twitter. That is Brew underscore Theology. You can go to the website, brewtheology.org. And if you want to support us, there's a donate button there. You can do that through uh, two different options and ways of paying, either one, uh, once a month. You can do as little as $1 or $5 or a one-time contribution. I want to thank Michelle out in Arvada for her contribution today, in fact. So thank you, Michelle. Thank you for uh, listening and for supporting us. We love doing this. We love brewing theology. We love creating these communities across the country. We have 10 chapters now. And man, this is just great that we get to do what we do. So enjoy, cheers, and party on, friends. Um, so I just, uh, I hope this means something to you. I just went to the Parliament of the World Religions, which is the largest interfaith meeting in the world, trying to bring about peace in the world. And what you just heard in this panel is what will save the world. And I am not, I'm not just saying that. Like, I heard religious leaders and representatives from all over, all types of religions, and this, this is it. If you want to save the planet and the world and the political systems we're in, this is it. And that's not making a plea for process open relational theology. It's about the kinds of lives we live as humans need to reflect this if we're going to still be here in a couple decades. Um, So I just also say that to affirm all of you that the work you're doing is so important and um, is echoing around the globe of what people are saying needs to be done. So thank you. Nancy Howell is a professor at St. Paul's in Kansas City. And my husband and I were there for 15 years, so it's kind of fun to read that and have you here. Um, and uh, the little quirky piece of her bio I think is cool is she also works with the Smithsonian on some things, so that's pretty awesome. So if you'd like to come and speak with us, that would be great. My husband and I are musicians, so we've spent a lot of nights in bars, Fridays, Saturday, Sunday. a night. And I'm tempted to say the same thing here that we say when we're playing music. The more you drink, the better we sound. You know, so so keep drinking. You know, this theology is going to sound better as the night gets on. Okay, so what I'm going to say tonight is as much testimony and a story of my own experience as a theologian as anything else. And so let me begin with the, the things that really influence the way I think as a process theologian and that in some ways predate it. There are certain things in scripture that certainly shape the way I think. And one of them 
has always been what the gospel tells us about the relationship of Jesus Christ to God, what that means. And it, the deepest part of my soul really believes that if I am to understand who God is, I must understand who Christ is. As one who is Christian, I don't, you know, of course I don't believe that for those who don't profess the same thing I do, but the Gospels carry a special meaning for me. And so the important thing to me about the Gospels is that Jesus Christ in his ministry is a relational person. And relational in multiple senses. One is that... Um, notice he, he wasn't like Clint Eastwood in Pale Rider. But instead, instead of being the solitary hero, was the person who engaged a community to do a ministry with them, and has outdone me considerably in hosting dinners for as many as 5,000 without blinking an eye. This is a relational person, one who with people uh, sort of evoked from them that which they needed, and discovered that it was found in themselves. So the hemorrhaging woman who has the courage to touch Jesus' garment is told, your faith has made you whole. Jesus didn't say, look, I cured you. But has engaged all of us somehow. But we pay a lot of attention to that part of Jesus' ministry and often forget or minimize the places where Jesus tells us that what we can really know about God is that this God not only knows the number of hairs on our heads, but also is involved with the lilies of the field so that they don't have to worry about how they look and knows even the sparrow that falls from the nest. And I think how far our theologies fall short of that kind of depth in understanding who God is by remembering who Jesus was and what Jesus taught, what Jesus is. So that's what brought me to process theology in the first place. I am drawn to things that create in me wonder and excitement again about what scripture is, about who God is, about what Christ means in our time. And that's why process theology has meant something to me. One of the things that I want to talk about tonight has to do with uh, what God's transcendence is. And I say that because I have just talked about what it means to have Jesus Christ as the example, the paradigm, the revelation of who God is and how relational that paradigm is. But what is transcendence then? Here's what, here's what my Sunday school teachers taught me. Well, you know, transcendence tells us how far beyond humanity God really is. It means that God is supernatural. God is distant from us and very different from what we are as humans. And imminence, the other term that's used to describe God, reminds us that God is always with us, always among us. And I thought, okay, that's good. And so my life uh, growing up was one of being divided between this God who is transcendent and imminent 
And, uh, you know, so in my um, everyday life, if I wanted to think about a transcendent God, I'd look for a nice clear night and see how deep into the universe I could see. You know, when I was away from city lights, there, there, there must be God. And, and when I was growing up, the astronauts were just beginning to walk on the moon and, and have uh, or space orbits and were asked, did you see God? And so I thought, well, I guess that's one way of seeing transcendence. But process theology helped me to think about transcendence in a new way. What if the very eminence of God, the very presence of God, is so profound and so deep and so far-reaching that God's transcendence really is that capacity to love without limit? My love is limited. You know, I got to tell you, I love very deeply the furry being in my house named Wallace. He's a cat. He's been with me 16 years. We know each other very well. I love him deeply. Oh, and my husband. Yes, I've known him a while, too. I, I love him. I, I adore my students and my colleagues at the seminary where I teach. I have some friends with whom I play ukulele. Whew. I'm crazy about those people. But notice how limited my love is. My love is limited to those persons with whom I've come into contact the persons whose names I know, whose quirks I know, whose idiosyncrasies drive me crazy, and whose gifts enrich me. And I, by the way, am offended by, you know, those t-shirts that used to say um, things like, you know, any t-shirt that says, you know, we, I love everybody kind of language, you know, or God, God loves all colors drives me crazy because it's such a generalization that it's offensive. It sort of erases all differences and the importance of our differences so that, you know, if I love you generically, that doesn't mean very much. It means I love you because I don't have to see how you look at 5 a.m. I don't have to see how you behave when we play Scrabble and I'm winning. You know what I mean? Love, love is a serious, very specific thing. And if you generalize about it, you have made it trivial. Okay, so that's the difference between me and God. And there are many, but we can't list them all tonight, right? I, I, uh, 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 the, the important thing I want to say then is that what I think is transcendent about God is not something I made up, by the way, but get from Charles Hartshorn and other process thinkers, is that God has a capacity to relate to and express love toward everything that is and is becoming. Everything. And in detail with an advocacy for its flour everything's flourishing, every individual thing's flourishing. And I thought, how would, how would I experience what that is? Um, and I thought, I'd, I don't even know 
what I mean by this, but how would, I, I, I was formulating a theological problem, and I believe that that my whole life is a theological problem. But but you know, uh, and that's be, but at least I have made it a profession, you know, so I get paid for it. Other people remain amateur, you know. Um, for me, theology is like praying without ceasing. It is that in every step I take, I have a question I ask. Every experience I encounter, I think, what does this mean? Where is God in this moment? And I'm not really thinking it as an intellectual exercise. It's almost as if I'm feeling my way into it, breathing in who God may be in a moment. Okay, so I thought, boy, how hypocritical would I be to explore this idea of deep love if I just thought, I'm going to work on how the, the earth is loved by God. And I thought, that's not right. Because the earth is some generic thing. It is nonspecific. And I believe God loves the earth, but, but in much more nuance than that. Then I thought, well, I could, be, I could be like those people who do ecological theology. And I could write about things in this world and how they are related to God. And I thought, you know, hey, that would be pretty cool because there are so many species of animals and plants that I could probably find one to prove my point. You know, if, if one species doesn't work for me, I'll just go to another one. You know, and my theology will come out without change. And I thought, no, that's no good. And, and um, I, I, heard a theo, uh, I read a theologian who said something about the importance of being able to name birds. You don't really love birds if you can't name the different species. And I thought, no, that's not quite right either because not all birds of the same species are alike. So I decided I was going to work with chimpanzees and bonobos. And I thought... And you can't be authentic in this if you don't know their names and who they are individually and how they behave. So I started to get to know some and found people who could introduce me to some animals. And wh what I discovered is that there, there are a lot of apes that are way smarter than we are because they have learned to communicate with us even though we can't always understand them. There are some who know American Sign Language and there are others who use lexigrams or, or symbols that indicate something ab about what words are, you know, so they can communicate. So I thought, okay, there's a good place to start. They have names, they have personalities, they have families and relationships, and I will get to know them and begin to understand something about the specificity of God's love for every being. So, I mean, I've had a number of experiences, but um, I got to meet Washoe and her son, Lulis. They're, they're the apes who did American Sign Language. Washoe has died since then. But I remember being trained very carefully. Don't look them in the eye. They will take that as an act of aggression. So, you know, be, have submissive behaviors. Try to stay lower than they are, or, or they'll become aggressive around you. And I thought, oh, this is way cool. And, and they can sign to me, and I have no idea what they're saying, because I don't know sign language, but I did get to know the bonobos who use lexigrams for language. And um, I can't tell you how impressed I was to meet animals who had an iPhone before I did. <laughs> and a six-month-old who was playing games on an iPad before I had an iPad. 
They were much better off than I. And you know, it, Con, one of them named Conzi has been on Anderson Cooper and was on the cover of Wired magazine. I mean, he's way more famous than I am. They're fascinating, but my encounters with them were un, in, unusual. When I first met Conzi, he slammed his giant hand against a glass window because we had walked by him without acknowledging him. And he, he's used to being a star, he's a bit of a diva. But as we were walking back, I walked up to the window and he put his hand on, on the, win, the safety glass that separated us. And I put my hand in his hand. And he stared into my eyes totally against all the rules I'd been taught about interacting with apes. And he held my gaze, and he smiled. And that's all he wanted. And he was fine. Later, um, there was an ape named Inyota, uh, an adolescent. This is, you, you're going to love this. He was uh, such a joker. He loved to kiss. So if he wanted to kiss you, he'd press his lips against the glass, and he'd want you to kiss him. And he felt like such a macho guy. And I loved him because he also had a little impishness about him. He would do this to everybody, but if you were a male and you went up to the window, he had a special treat for you. He would beg men to come and kiss him. And men would say, nope, nope, not, not going to do it, not going to get close. And Inyori would look really sad and pathetic and beg again, put his lips up to the window, and, and the men would say, I am not going to do this. Then Inyota would one more time make a plea, and men would come up to give Inyota a kiss, and then he would slap the window. <laughs> he didn't do that with women, he just did it with men. I thought that was... Well, Kanzi, who was the elder male in the group, was kind of offended by that, but he, he really loved the attention that Inyota got. So Kanzi began to do that as well. But he didn't do it as a joke. He didn't do it as a trick. He wanted the long extended eye to eye gaze. In those moments of interacting with the apes, and, and there are a million stories, I was most touched by the idea that I saw something new happening here because the apes had somehow learned something about human culture and we had found a way into ape culture. Something novel was happening. Perhaps a moment when God had intervened, had become in that relationship able to broker something new. And what happened in me was this. I had always known I was a child of God. But in that moment, I discovered I was not an only child. That was amazingly emotional and nerdy, and I loved it. <laughs> wow. I want to go to Kansas City, never been, just to sit under your teaching. All right. Well, uh, the next speaker is somebody that I, I actually learned about for the first time at Homebrew Christianity, our friends over there. 
And she has been over here making something that I'm not going to give away because I'm sure she's going to talk about it. You may not talk about it, but is it no? You, you may later. Um, but this co-creating process of humans with the divine, very tangible stuff. So Donna Bowman, come on up. Yep. Thank you very much, Ryan. I'm so excited to be here with this group. Thank you all for hanging out. Um, I just finished the latest book by um, Kim Stanley Robinson. Have any of y'all ever read any of his books? Absolutely fantastic new book called Red Moon. Um, and it's a near future story about Chinese and American politics as conducted on lunar basis. It takes place in 2030, it's really interesting. And at one point, a character in that book remarks, everybody is an intellectual. And she says it as if it's a maxim, as if it's an ideological statement. Everybody is an intellectual. And it struck me as a very important thing to say, as a principle. And it's something that theologians ought to think very hard about. And it struck me, I'm sure, because it expressed in a pithy way a principle that has come to be at the center of my work as a theologian. Because I always sum up uh, uh, my approach to students by saying, everyone does theology. Everyone does theology. But I also think that this idea is consonant with an underappreciated consequence of doing theology in a relational context, a, a process context for me. So I want to talk about that with you just a little bit. About five years ago, I was looking for a way to combine uh, a new interest I had in um, handcrafts and the people who do them with my training and work as a theologian. Um, and my training as a theologian had been focused on trying to learn from Karl Barth in a Whiteheadian context. And I don't know if any of you know what a silly thing that is to try to do. Um, I still think it's very important to do. And over the years that I've been doing it, um, slightly fewer people look at me like I'm crazy when I talk about it, which I guess is a positive thing. And if any of you want to talk about that with me, I, I think I'd go off in a very entertaining way about that. Uh, but I was also um, more willing at the middle of my career to think theologically about things that um, were highly gendered than I was at the early part of my career. Um, early on, that had seemed to me to be a limitation. And, and now in the middle of my career, it seemed like a vast and underexplored landscape. So I spent a year interviewing women who participated in prayer shawl ministries. And some of you know what that is. Um, may, uh, every time I mention it to someone, they say, oh yeah, my mother got one of those when she was in hospice. Or, um, uh, you know, I was in the hospital and someone from my church brought me one. So people have interacted with these prayer shawl ministries sometimes. And, and they, they occur in churches from the UCC in, in, in the, on the West Coast, to the Southern Baptists where, where I grew up, to Roman Catholics, to Greek Orthodox, and, and in some non-church settings as well. I interviewed several women who did prayer shawl ministry in an 
organ recovery agency, the, the people who um, coordinate the receipt of organs from people who've been in accidents or who have died in such a way that their organs can be recovered and facilitate them tr being transplanted. Um, so my aim in this work, drawing from the methods of what's called ordinary theology, so that's a whole other podcast we can do, Ryan. Let's do an ordinary theology podcast. I would love to, I can, I can cross over there. Um, my aim was to understand what theological ideas and meanings these women, and they were all women that I interviewed, uh, happened to be, um, what theological ideas and meanings they brought to their work and took from their work. So what they brought to their work, I might call theological inputs. Um, it relates to their education, including their religious education in various faith communities, formal and informal education. Um, it includes prior experiences, right? Meanings and concepts that they have received and, uh, and or formed for themselves that have proved useful and resilient, right? So I'm gonna call those things they bring to their work or inputs, right? And then I was interested in what they took from their work, maybe theological harvest, um, that it comes from the context of the prayer shawl ministry itself. And that includes what they might have read or heard about it, decisions they made singly or collectively about how to go about it, interactions with others because of it, and the actions of making and giving that compose the prayer shawl ministry. So my study was premised on the idea that participants in prayer shawl ministry are intellectuals, that they are theologians, that they create theological meanings and connections that make sense of this work that they do. Not only beforehand, I think sometimes we think, okay, I get a meaning together and then I go out and act on it, right? So not just beforehand as a reason to do it, but even more importantly, I think, out of the experience of doing this work. So I did that. Uh, I wrote a book about it um, uh, for Lexington Press. It's called Prayer Shawl Ministries and Women's Theological Imagination. Get your library to order it. Uh, and then th the next part of my, my, my next project came not from the theology part of that, but the listening to knitters part. Um, and I'd be interested to hear if anyone else on the panel has ever had this experience that you recognize something is happening around you, and, and you think, I hope someone is studying this. <laughs> and then you think, damn it, I guess that someone is me, <laughs> right? Um, and that's what happened to me. Um, I made and mailed off um, five or six hats for the Pussy Hat Project. Uh, around the January 21st women's marches in, in 2017. And I realized on January 15th, which was six days before the march, that someone ought to be talking to all the people who made those hats. And I was the one who knew where to find them, and I had spent the last three years talking to knitters, so I guess it had to be me. 
So from late February to August uh, 2017, I surveyed over 800 of them and interviewed over 200 of them. Uh, and I asked them, much as I asked the prayer shawl makers, but with fewer questions about God, why they got involved, what they did, and what they thought of the results. What meanings had they made? The participants in the Pussy Hat Project are intellectuals. So what it means to say that everyone is an intellectual or everyone is a theologian is that everyone is the undisputed expert on their own experience. And that they have inevitably made meaning and sense out of that experience in some way in interactions with other sources of meaning and sense, right? So I define theology as making sense out of what we've received. That's my definition of theology, making sense out of what we've received. And I think the virtue of theology as a discipline is that we are pretty clear about some categories of what we've received in ways that I think other disciplines aren't as clear. Like some of those givens are really well defined, like scripture and tradition. They're categories that we don't have the option of pretending that we aren't responding to the contingency of those givens, if that's not too many big philosophical concept. We don't have the option of pretending that we aren't responding to con contingency in those givens. There's a lot of ne double negatives there, sorry. I think some people try, do try really hard to pretend that, but I think it's, it's hard to do, harder with theology than other things. What's wrong with theology, why theology is in crisis in the academy, and I work in a public university, is that we have a long tradition of treating it as an elite intellectual exercise rather than a universal mandate of the human condition. We've treated it as, as the story of ideas rather than an imperative born of experience. A friend of mine posted on Twitter yesterday uh, a quote from D.T. Suzuki, the you know, famous uh, popularizer of, of Zen Buddhism in the 1960s. Uh, uh, D.T. Suzuki said about Zen, no ideas are intelligible to those who have no backing of experience. I thought that was apropos. So that brings me here like in the last 120 seconds um, to open in relational theology what I was asked to come here and talk about. Whitehead says that the actual entity, the occasion, maybe that was the word you were searching for, the occasion, right, stands alone in the moment of decision, the fulcrum between becoming and being, right? In our phase of becoming, we're gathering all the influences, and then there's this moment where the entity is alone, that moment of decision of how to view all that stuff, all the ingredients, how you're going to value and, and, and categorize that and what, you're, what whole you're going to make of that. And at that moment of decision, then that's when the entity stops becoming and starts being, being something for others, right? So that means to me that there is no substitute in theology for talking to as many theologians as you can, right? 
uh, it's so much what Nancy was just saying. The irreducibility of the individual decision in the meaning-making process means you can't make any assumptions or generalizations. No generalizations, including about what your own experience says about humans in general. That's what we, th we theologians have done that what, for 2,000 years. It's like, well, this happened to me, Augustine said. I, I had this experience. John Wesley said, I was strangely warmed, whatever it was. That's, that's what everybody, that's true for everybody, right? We generalize like crazy, and we do it without doing the legwork, without asking and listening to people who have each, in those solitary moments, formed their own meanings out of what they've received. So I'll just make one actual theological point, and then one meta-theological point after all of this discussion of methodology, right? The theological slash ethical point. The Pussy Hat Project is theologically fascinating to me because it seems to me to be a very, very, very rare occurrence of kindness at scale. Kindness is difficult to scale precisely because kindness is relational. It's predicated on seeing, hearing, caring about, and touching individual to individual. That's what kindness is. And the Pussy Hat Project managed to create that by mobilizing large numbers of individuals not to do one thing together, but to do one thing individually in parallel, and then to gather and redistribute it. It's almost like that accordion action of, that I think, I think of the actual entity again. I think of that like all the stuff coming in like squeezing into a singularity and then accordioning back out, right? That's what it almost seems to me. They, they gathered and redistributed all those individual touches actually happening to individual people, right? From individuals to a central point, back to individuals. And so that's, that was an interesting thing I need to think about theologically. Kindness at scale. And then my meta-theological point. Empathy, seemingly, is less interesting than antipathy. We are fascinated by hatred, and we're driven by a need to understand it, or just gape at it in horror, but we're fascinated by it, right? All of those New York Times profiles of people who hate, right? But the theologies of empathy and care that I find in these women-centered spaces, and they're women-centered partly because women have been allocated the job of caring, the job of nurturing, right? Um, those theologies of empathy and care seem to fascinate us far less. We find them banal, um, or we take them as just nature, I guess, or a given. And I think that's a problem for our discipline of theology. Thank you. I hope you all are hearing the same thing that I'm hearing, that maybe theology should actually give a shit. Yeah? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that's it, simple. Our, uh, our next speaker, thank you, Donna, by the way. Our next speaker 
is the director, executive director of the Center for Process Studies, which means that, you know, if you have another process question like earlier, this is the guy to ask right here, Andrew Schwartz, and you and Steven are friends, so evidently you've got a little battle tonight that I'm unaware of, but I don't know what that means. He, he taught my wife to smoke. <laughs> He's a corrupter. So uh, I'm really happy to be here at this open and relational extravaganza. Although, of course, I, I think when I told my family I was going to do that, they're like, it's like a swingers club? Where, where do you open and relational? I, I don't know what that means. I'm like, so, so if anybody's interested. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, um, yeah, not you. Definitely not you. Uh, so I think I was getting, you know, really enjoying listening to everybody earlier and getting a sense of... Uh, a lot of us have no idea what we mean when we say process, open, and relational theologies, right? Um, that would be, I, I'm, I'm including myself in that, uh, director of the center for, you know, whatevers. Um, but I think the, you know, when we talk about open and relational, it gets used as a sort of umbrella term uh, that includes things like process theology, open theism, these other sort of personalist-oriented theologies of the relational nature. Uh, Wesleyan holiness traditions often fall in that. Um, it's not everybody of those traditions would consider their smells open relational. But, um, and I think we try to, under this umbrella, Tom had a, a nice uh, book where he actually put a chart together, sort of an actual like umbrella, um, labeled open and relational, and underneath that marked a bunch of different things that could fall under it. And... Um, the question is, what brings all these together, right? Why open? Why relational? And uh, I promise I'll get to what I was talking, supposed to talking about anyways, like the like, identity and stuff. But, um, you know, why open? Why relational? There's a sense in which open really refers to sort of the openness of the future to both God and the rest of creation. Um, we don't know what's going to happen next, right? So we heard that earlier. Um, and then there's a sense in which relationality is about, uh, you know, the interconnectedness of all things. Um, so if we believe that the world is essentially this flow, this process of becoming, um, that the future is possible but not actual, so it's still open, and that everything is interconnected, that there's this deep relationality, that we're constituted by our relations— then we might say we're open and relational thinkers. If you have a theology built upon that framework, you can call yourself an open and relational theologian. How many people here are interested in doing that? Okay, some. That's good. Um, so I think it's helpful for me to say, okay, let's begin with what, what are we thinking um, about the, the way the world works? And then connect that to what we think about God and theology and these other sorts of things that we know nothing about. So, you know, the world or reality. If we say that it's ever-changing and it's interconnected, what are the implications for the way we understand religion um, and religious identity? How many people here uh, identify as Christian? Okay. How many people believe in the existence of an immortal soul? Uh-huh. How many of those people that were both Christian and believed in the immortal soul, you know, can you raise your hand? No, you don't have to. I won't call you out. But point being is that not, I mean, the, here's the question, right? Do Christians believe in the existence of an immortal soul? 
based on the audience here, I'd say yes and no. Some Christian people who identify as Christian believe in this. Some people who identify as Christian do not. What in the world does it mean to be Christian? If you don't have a single, you know, identity where everybody agrees on, we believe the same exact things. You think, well, maybe, maybe diversity in the tradition is okay, and it's not about what you believe. Well, maybe it's about practices. All right, so we say, let's, well, we partake in the Eucharist, you know, some communion. Uh, are we using a wafer, using some bread? Uh, are we dipping it? Are we passing it around, sharing a cup, individual cups? How, how does it work? We don't even have the same practices. Okay, well, that's not good. So we don't do good on the shared beliefs, and we don't do good on shared practices. So what exactly is it that brings people under this umbrella called Christianity? By the way, you can extend that to any religion, right? It's not just Christianity. All the religions have these same sorts of issues. What does it mean to be a particular religion, to identify with a particular religion? And here's what I'm thinking. Just, just, I'm, I don't have actually any answers. I just like, like to raise questions and problems. And um, some of the things I've been thinking about lately include what in the world does it mean to identify with any particular religion if we can't even pinpoint what it means to be that religion? Like, what is Christianity? How is it similar to or different from Islam? Do you know that you can get a thinker like, uh, you know, Charles Hartshorn, who would identify, who would have self-identified under the Christian umbrella has more similarities with some Islamic mystics than he actually does with other Christian theologians of the classical theist variety. Uh, what are we supposed to do with that, right? So this is my spiel on an open and relational perspective of tradition. Maybe we should realize that religion itself is also dynamic, changing, becoming, that it is not a static thing that just sort of sits there, say we belong to this and it's unchanging and that's it. So if we begin with an open and relational worldview where everything's changing and everything's interconnected, and we extend that to religion to say that religions, whatever we mean by that, are also complex, ever-changing, and interconnected, then what exactly does it mean to identify with a religion? What does it mean to be a religious person? So the implications for religious identity and theology, what does it mean to, to do theology in this context of religions that are not static? Um, Maybe it means that our identities also change. How many of you believe the same things theologically today as you did when you were a child? This guy found the truth at an early age. He, um, right? So, I mean, we, it's, it's, so, so, it's so simple. I'm not saying anything that surprises you, right? Like, of course, your own beliefs, your own ideas, they've changed over the years. And a lot of that's based on your experience. Experience is an important word in process and open relational thought. Um, since it's actually experience that's said to sort of be all the way down. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead, a name that's been thrown out a few times, the, uh, the godfather of process thought, uh, made an offer we could, we could always refuse because of free will. But um, he said that, that sort of the thing that the final real things of what the world is made up of are actually drops of experience. Right? It like blows your mind. Like, what in the world does that mean? So instead of static, enduring substances that are unchanging, uh, you know, it's actually momentary flashes of existence, experience. And we all have experience, and we all understand that our experiences change who we are. Um, and traditions, religious traditions, uh, are not sort of. Uh, 
free from that sort of trend of change, of influence becoming diversity. So if, if uh, any particular religion is diverse, over the years, changes, under this umbrella has lots of different beliefs and lots of different practices, how are we supposed to do theology and how are we supposed to identify uh, religiously? So here's a couple possibilities that I think might be helpful. One is when we recognize that sort of religious borders are kind of fluid, they actually become semi-arbitrary, and that's okay. Um, it actually opens up the door for a neat thing called multiple religious belonging. So we got a guy named Paul Knitter who wrote this great little book, Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. Think about that. Um, but maybe you're thinking, ooh, that's a little too crazy. You know, I don't really want to belong to more than one religion. I don't know what that means. Um, so you can still be, you know, belong to a single religion, but maybe this recognition that religion is changing, that your identity is dynamic and becoming an interrelated, right? So our traditions, our religious traditions don't sort of emerge in a vacuum. They're all historically connected as well. Um, then our religious identity at least needs to be flexible uh, enough for sort of this dynamism that takes place. But then this is, this is what actually has been fascinating me recently is this idea of, of no religion, um, no religious belonging. Do you know it's the, the fastest growing sort of segment within the U.S. Uh, is people who identify as no religion, um, either atheist, agnostic, or just sort of nothing in particular, marking as their, their religious identity. Fastest growing. It's doubled in the last 10 years. It makes up like a third of the population. So what does it mean to be, for example, spiritual but not religious? in a context where religion is fluid, the borders are fluid, and the sort of lines are arbitrary. So there's this thing called uh, theology without walls. Um, it's kind of a funky little sounding thing, right? Well, it's theology without walls. Um, I'll be doing a panel at that tomorrow, actually, at the American Academy of Religion. It should be a lot of fun. Or maybe it's Sunday. This guy's looking at me like, no, that's the wrong day. Okay. Anyways, so theology without walls. So what does it mean to do that? Um, I think in what it what it can mean is doing theology in a way that re recognizes the sort of fluid nature of the borders of our religious boundaries. So the example I had, right, of, of a, a Christian like Hartshorn has more similarities with certain Muslim thinkers than he does with other Christian thinkers. Um, sort of the boundaries between Christianity and Islam there become a little porous. They become a little fluid. We're not exactly sure where to draw the line, and the line's always moving. So what these theologians are starting to explore is saying, well, maybe we should actually start doing theology without walls or beyond walls. Um, it, and that, that opens us up to a sort of a new spirituality of um, connecting to insights and resources outside of our traditional home tradition, right? So you think instead of coming together around um, sort of building up walls around sort of particular answers, we actually could be coming together around a set of shared questions. I mean, that's a new kind of spiritual community. And I think it's actually the kind of community that we have represented here at Brew Theology, is the kind of community that is eclectic and open to exploring a plurality of perspectives in this sort of flexible openness. Um, so kudos to Ryan and the Brew Theology team for for that model, because I think it really actually does reflect uh, sort of the insight of an open and relational view of religious identity and traditions in which everything flows, including your beer. So cheers.
Thanks, Andrew. Um, so I've been asked to remind you as we get close to closing tabs to please tip well. Um, Blue Moon offers this space for free, and so we just want to appreciate the opportunity to meet here and be present. I get the honor of introducing our last speaker, and I'm going to keep the camera on because one thing you might not know about Thomas J. Ord is he's an amazing photographer. Um, so, Thomas, if you come meet me in Denver this time, <laughs> uh, we just had the privilege of uh, seeing each other in Toronto at the Parliament of World Religions, where he won't tell you, but I will, that he was part of creating one of the morning assemblies on justice, and it was fabulous. Um, he also has written over 20 books. Uh, he's been a professor in different universities, and he has been gracious and kind to let to co-edit a book with me on women's experiences of faith, of which I'm forever grateful. So he uh, has been doing this work a very long time and is who I learned these words from and these ideas from, and so I'm so glad that you could join us tonight and share with us about open and relational theology. Thomas J. Ord. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks. A couple years ago, I got an email from uh, someone who wasn't one of my Facebook, actually it was a Facebook message, someone who wasn't one of my Facebook friends, but a friend of one of my former students who's actually an amazing bodybuilder. And in this particular email message, she said, um, I just finished reading your book. Let me tell you a little bit about my story. I am a victim of incest. I'm a victim of someone whose boyfriend sexually molested me and a stranger molested me. She said, I've been given all kinds of explanations for why this happened and where God was in the midst of my horrific pain. The one that I've heard most often was this. God gives free will to people. God gave free will to the people who sexually abused me. God could have stopped them, but God allowed them to abuse me. She said, this particular explanation of what happened to me in my life never made much sense to me. Why would a loving God allow such atrocities? Why would a loving God allow people to do horrendous things to me, hurt me in such deep ways? She said, I read your book, and for the first time, I heard someone say that maybe God just can't stop people from using their free will wrongly. Maybe it's not that God stood by and allowed what happened to me, but God couldn't stop it. Now, to some people, the idea that God can't stop sexual abuse or whatever else, that sounds like a pretty wimpy and weak God. They don't want that kind of God in their lives. But to a person who's been abused like Claire has been abused, it was such a note of comfort. Because she would much rather believe in a God who couldn't stop what happened to her than a God who could but stood by and just allowed it. About a year previous to that, a friend of mine named Jason, actually he wasn't a friend at the time, he is now, sent me an email. He said, let me tell you a little bit about my story. In fact, I've started to write a book about it. My four-year-old son 
On a Sunday afternoon, my wife and the other kids had left the house. He and I were together. I laid down for a Sunday afternoon nap. My four-year-old son walked out of the house, got into our car. The door shut behind him, and he couldn't get out. He baked. He died in my car. He said, all these folks who've told me about a God of love and free will can't give me an explanation for why this happened. It wasn't my free will that caused it. We can't blame a four-year-old. Why wouldn't God send me a message and awake me from my sleep? Why wouldn't God unlatch the doors miraculously and let my son out of the car? Can't God control the things that aren't free in the world to save my son? Big questions. It's one thing to say that a loving God won't take away someone's free will, or maybe even can't take it away. But why wouldn't a loving God interrupt the laws of nature? Fiddle with the locks in a car? Somehow interrupt our sleep patterns to wake us in, the, in that kind of a situation? I suggest that God can't do those things as well. God can't take away free will. God can't single-handedly rescue four-year-olds from cars. Again, some people hear that and they say, what a wimpy God. <laughs> this God isn't doing anything then. <laughs> I mean, what, is, what use is a God who can't single-handedly rescue us from cars? And yet to Jason, when I counseled him in his situation, it was a sense of peace to know that God couldn't do that. Because just like Claire, who wanted to believe in a God of love who didn't stand by and allow her sexual abuse, Jason wanted to believe in a God of love who couldn't have somehow interrupted things unilaterally to prevent the horrible death of his four-year-old. This way of thinking about God's power has been played around by lots of folks over the years. And many people have wrestled with how you can talk about God's love and God's power in such a way that you have a God who's strong, but not responsible or morally culpable for the genuine evils of the world. Some folks have said God has made a decision. God has voluntarily decided to be self-limited and out of respect for the freedom or agency of others, decides not to intervene to rescue unilaterally. But the problem with that approach is that that means God could have rescued, but cho chooses not to. The God who voluntarily self-limits is still ultimately responsible for not intervening to rescue when God could. Now, there's another set of folks who want to make place limitations on God that sound as if there's something outside of God, twisting God's arm. God would like to do something, but God's saying, you know, that's... The, the principalities and powers of the earth or Satan or metaphysical laws, something outside of God is constraining God. And that sounds like these external forces are in some way more powerful than God. I've suggested the idea that I think was in the little paper here that perhaps we should think about God's power as being internally self-limited, but not by God's choice. That is, God's nature of love is necessarily others-empowering and self-giving. 
And God necessarily gives freedom to complex creatures like me and you, agency to less complex creatures. God's loving awareness and presence in the world creates what we call the laws of nature. And because this is God's very heart, God can't take away free will. God can't override the agency of others. There's something about the way God is constructed that God must always give whatever level of freedom, agency, power to whatever kind of complex creature there is in the world. God necessarily does that because God's nature is love. This is the heart of the book that I wrote recently called The Uncontrolling Love of God. And my wife read the book. Well, she tried to read the book. She doesn't have a background in theology. And uh, she said, Tom, you need to write a book that people can actually understand. And I said, well, thanks. I tried to do that in the last book. She said, no. She says, what you need to do is you need to write what she calls a Barnes and Noble book, by which she means one that actually sells. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to try to do that. So I sat down and I thought to myself, okay, this idea that God can't prevent evil single-handedly is going to be at the very heart of my way of thinking about the problem of evil. But there's some other dimensions of evil that I want to also address that aren't uh, in that particular dimension. For instance, a lot of people have said, um, you know, God allows things because it's part of God's plan to make us better people, to improve our characters, to teach us a lesson. And there's an element of truth to that insofar as sometimes we do learn something. Sometimes we're able to, as I like to say, God can squeeze some good out of the evil or bad God didn't want in the first place. But the problem is if we go that approach, that means we have to say that every horrible thing was somehow allowed by God as some sort of mysterious master plan to make us better or for the greater good or whatever. When I was a young kid, there was a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata who made the speaking circuit in the evangelical circles that I was a part of. Anybody ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? Okay, a few people. She has an interesting story. She, she was a teenager. She was in Chesapeake Bay. She dove out of her family boat. She didn't realize that there was, I think, a rock just below the surface of the water. She was paralyzed from the neck down. She went on to, she remained that way and still alive today, paralyzed, but she wrote a book. She went on a speaking tour. She's recorded albums, movies. She learned how to paint with her teeth, and she's amazing, the kinds of things she can do. And she looks back at her life and sees all the good that's come out of it, and she believes it was God's will for her to be paralyzed. In fact, she believes God was punishing her for her sins as a teenager by making her paralyzed. Her way of looking at the world is that she looks at all the good that came out of her life, which I think there was some good, and in order to justify it as a part of God's plan, says this must be what God wanted. God was punishing me because God wanted something good to come out of it. In the uh, new book that I've written, I talk about this as a way for God to work with the horrible things that God doesn't want to have happen in the world, work with us and creation to bring something good out of the crap 
God didn't want in the first place. There's other dimension of this book that I don't think I'm going to go into at the time. But um, I guess I, what I want to do tonight is to suggest to you to think about the possibility that there is a God of love who is present in all our lives. Whether you believe in God or not, I happen to be a believer. Whether you're a Christian or not, I happen to be a Christian. And this God loves everyone all the time to the utmost. But this God simply cannot control anything or anyone. The good that we find in our lives has God as its source. The evil is not God's intention. And in fact, God simply can't prevent it unilaterally. So a plug for this book. Sorry to do a little commercial. But I have a book coming out in January with this provocative title. God Can't. How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. I encourage you to take a look at it. It might be the kind of book you understand if, if you don't have a degree in theology. It was my intention to make it uh, widely accessible. Thanks. Are you ready for a panel? All right, panelists, if you're, all four of you, if you'd come on up, you're going to have to share a little bit, but I think you guys can handle it in your relationalness. I'm not worried. How do white, post, or still Christian folks interested in theology without borders avoid the imperialistic trend of appropriating thought and practices? I mean, it's, that's, that's a difficult question. Um, I think, I mean, does anybody else have a thought on that? I don't know. Uh, appropriation is a hard thing to, to overcome anyways. So it's, it's one of the real challenges of comparative work, generally speaking. Um, not just cultural, but even like sort of philosophical appropriation, you know, imposing concepts onto other cultures and traditions. So take, for example, nirvana. You know, it's easy for Christians to read in heaven. That's just Buddhist version of heaven. Which is, no, actually, Buddhists are asking a completely different set of questions than Christians. We shouldn't just equate the two. Um, so these are not easy things to do. Um, I think what's critical, though, is that we approach uh, sort of different ways of being in, in the world in different wisdom traditions uh, with as much uh, deep listening as possible. Um, and always with uh, sort of openness and, as Tom would be proud to hear, love. <laughs> that topic was one that was really important when white feminists tended to dominate the theological landscape and then black women and womanist theologians came as a second voice. And so there was a panel uh, probably two decades ago called Appropriation and Reciprocity. The problem is appropriation uh, is an act of stealing taking something from someone else. And uh, reciprocity is a, a, a contrary act, that act of, of receiving yet also giving in a relationship. And the way I've tried to think of it is this. There was a period when there were a lot of writers who would try to couch their work this way. I write as a white, feminist, Christian, North American, 
yada 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 person, yeah, human, <laughs> and and I am I can only speak for myself and I can't speak for others. And all that did in a postmodern world was create a nice little boundary around myself that made me invulnerable to any critique. What the difference is, we should not appropriate, we should not steal, but we should be responsive. And when, uh, for example, a black theologian tells me that my theology is offensive, then my job is to review my theology and make the changes that respect yeah. others yeah. in a, a profoundly relational way. Yeah, that's great. Thank to, you. To use a phrase that uh, John Cobb likes to, to talk about, uh, mutual transformation, um, I think is very similar to this reciprocity. Yeah, great. Well, we actually had a question left over from last time that Donna started to answer for us. Um, to please share about a secular book, author, or speaker that affected you spiritually. And Kim Stanley Robinson uh, has those influences for sure. Do any of, any of you have someone that comes to mind? Yeah, the heart, what we're all doing now is trying to narrow it down. <laughs> you, you, I'll give you two as long as you're quick. Uh -huh. How's that? <laughs> There's this book called The Uncontrolling Love of God that I found <laughs> so inspiring. <laughs> I don't know if this qualifies, but let me give a testimonial of my fifth grade reading. Okay. I was profoundly changed by a little book called Frederick Douglass Fights for Freedom. <laughs> I got it from my little scholastic little 75 cent book thing and it was all about Frederick Douglass's uh, attempts to you know combat slavery etc and I've often thought that that little book was the seed of the liberation theology that emerged eventually in me. Wow awesome. Okay, I'll give a similar answer about the fifth grade uh, and the scholastic <laughs> book out of that, I think. Uh, this is one I found on my brother's bookshelf. He had ordered it out of a scholastic, my older brother ordered out of a scholastic book. It was, it was a book, a, a, a fictionalized story of a, a, a kid in one of the Japanese internment camps in World War II. And I live in Arkansas now, um, which is home to two Japanese internment camps, the ones that were furthest east um, and uh, George Takei, you may know, um, lived as a child in one of those Arkansas internment camps. Uh, at the time when I encountered that book, I had never heard of this incident. In, it, this had never been taught to me. Maybe I was 10, maybe I was 11. Never knew this thing existed. And I think that was the start of my understanding of the profoundly contingent nature of a historical consciousness, mm. that um, things, uh, the, the history does not move in, in some sort of ideal arc, um, that um, things could have been otherwise and should have been otherwise, and that we are, we didn't, I didn't do those things, but I'm responsible for the world that I now live in, in which those things happened. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was a, a very important theological message for me as well. Cool. All right. Um, Andrew, we already zinged you, so I'll save this other question for later. So just, you've been warned. Uh, for Donna and the panel, what place does metaphysics have in theology if we should not make generalizations? Okay. 
metaphysics, um, uh, I spent, I think, the early part of my career sort of um, defending metaphysics because I didn't know how to be a structural, theolo uh, um, a constructive theologian without metaphysics. I'm much less interested in metaphysics now. Um, I'm, I, I'm much more interested in the consonances that um, occur between process thought and classical Christian theology and existentialism. I'm much more interested in Bart as an existentialist. I'm much more interested in, um, um, you know, um, uh, I'm thinking of lots of different kind of people writing in the process world today that, that I think are not interested in parsing the metaphysics, but are interested in the condition under which we live, the condition of Heraclitus and change. Um, and and thing and things not being static, not understand, not having the right terminology, right, to put it all in places, but but to understand that what that does to us as existing subjects, to understand God in some way as an existing subject. Um, so in a way, it's a uh, it's you say some things um, about what we all have to deal with, but. You're, you refrain, perhaps, from, um, uh, you know, speculating too much beyond our sphere, um, because I think there's plenty to deal with in, in our sphere. Doesn't, doesn't mean I don't still have beliefs about all of those things that profoundly influence how I see the world and the reality I think we all have to deal with, but... Um, yeah, that I, I'm. Okay. Yeah, thank that, you. Did I answer the question? I don't know who asked that question. You know, I think if you go to um, to go buy a copy of God Can't at uh, <laughs> at Barnes and Noble, uh, <laughs> and you stroll over to the metaphysics section, it's going to mostly be books about ghosts and like you know those sorts. Of, I mean, so what metaphysics means in popular cultures really isn't what philosophers talk about. And uh, again, to, to quote my good buddy John Cobb, because I don't have an original thought, is that um, <laughs> metaphysics is the most practical of all the disciplines. And of course, it doesn't have that reputation. Oh, it's speculative metaphysics. It's out there about, you know, sort of the universe or these big questions. He's like, no, actually, it's about the fundamental assumptions that we have about the way the world works. And whether or not we are, uh, you know, sort of reflecting upon those or not, we have those assumptions. Um, so, you know, he would actually has, has argued that, you know, it's sort of um, environmental crisis, uh, s uh, economic, um, you know, structures and, and, yeah, inequality, oppression, entire systems of exploitation, all those can be traced back to Descartes in the modern worldview and a certain metaphysic that was being assumed by you know, a few hundred years of people and that a new worldview, a new metaphysic could actually change all that and help save the world, as you had said. Any other thoughts on how we avoid generalization when we're dealing with ah. wisdom traditions yeah. and balance and... Yeah. Pick a tradition that doesn't generalize. Okay. <laughs> um, if we go back to the metaphysics question, uh, remembering th that uh, the process metaphysics we're talking about tries not to generalize. It looks to 
some important questions to ask over and over again, but it doesn't necessarily generalize. It recognizes the value of the individual um, that um, uh, in, a, in a single species, one animal is shy and one animal is stupid and one can learn 500 words. And so we, we take, I think we take all these systematic ways of thinking, these organized ways of thinking as tools they are not to dictate to us. They are to help us remember what to ask and to help us shape ways of seeing. Anything else? All right. All right, so Andrew, this one was for you, but I'm sure everyone can jump in. Um, when, you, when you ask about what defines Christianity, wouldn't most traditions say the creeds? What does process and open theism say about the creeds? It's a fantastic question. Um, so I would say, yeah, actually, yeah, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, like these are things that have been used to sort of bring Christians together. Um, now, how they were developed, uh, it's something else that could be discussed. And um, But then there's this whole little thing called interpretation. Uh, so... So I actually, uh, I grew up uh, Nazarene, uh, studying under this guy here in Northwest Nazarene University until they kicked me off. No, oh, Nazarenes, yeah, yeah, just yeah. kidding. Um, and coming out of this sort of, you know, evangelical orientation, uh, the Bible was more important than the creeds. And the reason for that was because it was black and white with some really important red letters here and there. And uh, so it was just straightforward. You say, here's the truth. You either affirm what the Bible says or you reject it, which means you reject God and his saving grace, so have fun in damnation. <laughs> and, um, you know, what's, what's so sad is that so many people caught up in this sort of evangelical uh, tradition uh, often forget that, yes, maybe the, the actual words in the you know, pages of my Bible are black and white and red, um, but they all have to be interpreted and understood. And there's a context that is, you know, happening when it's being written in a context that's happening when I'm reading it. Yeah. It's just not quite as simple as we hope. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why our traditions are diverse, um, that so many people can take the same text, um, not to mention the fact that Christians don't all have the same Bible. The, the canon itself is different across Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism and Protestantism. But um, that's another thing. But... Yeah, that, that there is diversity, um, it reigns supreme. And I don't think that has to be a bad thing. Um, what about mainline churches? <laughs> People who care about the creeds? <laughs> okay, I have a perspective on this. Um, I, I grew up Southern Baptist and I'm an Episcopalian now, so we say the creeds uh, every, every service. Um, and man, I love the creeds. And well, the reason I love the creeds is because, especially in Episcopalianism, we have a, a deep understanding because of the historical moment at which that ha Anglicanism happened, that you're sitting in the pew next to people um, who don't necessarily mean the same thing you mean when we say the creed. So, and I think that's beautiful, especially if we, if we know it and we say it and we remember it, that the person beside me is, think, is meaning something different when they talk about, um, you know, um, God from God, light from light. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, oh man, the whole reason these things are in the creed is because some, some kind of crazy historical contingency because they were making an argument against people back at that time who thought Jesus wasn't fully, wasn't really God, was lesser or, you know, begotten, not made because you couldn't think of Jesus as created. So it all, in the creed is all of this wonderful historical stuff um, about arguments from, from 2,000 years ago, right? And, and then we get to the part about the Holy Spirit, and I'm like, okay, now I get to stand up, and this is the part I really mean. I really know what, what the Holy Spirit's all about. Like some of the other stuff, I'm like, well, I have historical quibbles with this, or, you know, but the Holy Spirit I'm all about. So it, I, I think affirming is, it really is about what Andrew said, about affirming that your interpretation of it doesn't have to be the same as the person next to you's interpretation, doesn't have to be the same as the catechism's interpretation no matter what they tell you, right? No matter what they, the stuff coming down from the top is. And that, and that diversity is a good thing, right? It's so, so who, great. How many people enjoy listening to songs with a single note, right? I mean, no, you don't. Of it course not, right? It makes it interesting. You need diversity and harmony. It keeps it interesting. Complexity and beauty. You know, a, a garden of one flower is the worst garden in the world. Uh, you need lots of color and lots of diversity, and that's a good thing. I think religion's no different. All right, I'll, go ahead. I'll say something about that. Um, I grew up a biblical fundamentalist. Uh, I've since discovered people who are creedal fundamentalists. If you don't believe the creed, you're not in. I've even encountered a few people who seem to me to be white-headed fundamentalists. <laughs> <laughs> the boss <Boston> side. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's necessarily any one of those things that's the problem. Perhaps it's the way we approach them that's the problem. Well, we are getting close to the end, so I, what I'd like to do is ask all of our speakers to come up, and if you'd all come over here for a second. Can we give them a giant round of applause? So I just want to say thank you to all of you for coming. For Thanks for organizing it. For participating in our community. For Ryan, for he did like 90% of the work Thanks for this. Ten, so thank you, Ryan. Yeah. And so before we go, I just want to ask you, and this of course is an easy question. If there were one word or very short phrase that you would want us to leave with, would you each share one with us? Relational power. Bacterial prehension. Embrace the wreckage. I think it's uh, be awesome to each other. Uh, for me, it's live a life of love. Love difference. Individual touch. All right. Thank you again, um, everyone. Let's give them another round of applause.